Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Rebel Mama Hotline. This is our fourth episode in our women's health series in partnership with the WHCC. Our goal here is to raise awareness about the gap in women's health research. And we have been learning so many incredible and hopeful things in the process, thanks to our wonderful guest hosts. Yes, and today we will be discussing women's sexual health as well as fertility with special guest Dr. Lori Brado. Dr. Brado is a professor in the UBC Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology and a registered psychologist. She is also the executive director of the Women's Health Research Institute of BC, located at BC Women's Hospital. You can find out more about Dr. Brado in our show notes, but for now, let's welcome her to the show. Welcome to the Rebel Mama Hotline, Dr. Brado. Thank you so much for having me. We are pumped to have you here. So pumped. <laughs> Sex is our favorite thing to talk about. Ever. <laughs> me too. Okay, good. So let's just dive right in then. There was a stat that I read when we were preparing this that floored me. Is it true that as many as 40% of women experience low desire and up to 10% are distressed enough for it to be a diagnosable condition? Is this true? It is true. Oh. And uh, in fact, that study that found that was done the same year that Viagra was approved for men in Canada. That was 1999. And what it did was because there was so much attention on men's sexuality and suddenly there was this safe and effective um, discrete treatment for men. This study that came out that same year that found 40% of women have, you know, ongoing difficulties with sexual desire really turned the tide in the research on sexuality. And so really the, the research examining the nature of women's sexual health and treatments for it started after Viagra was approved in 1999. And that figure has since been replicated in many other studies in different parts of the world. And importantly, across ages, it's not just older women or postmenopausal women, it's uh, young women as well struggle with low desire. And that's such a huge chunk, like 40% is no joke. It's actually, when I read it, it was so disheartening to see that statistic. So as far as you can tell, what's actually happening when desire goes missing in a woman's life? Yeah. So the, you know, the first thing that a, a person might often ask themselves or typically their doctor is check my hormones. You know, I must have low testosterone after all, isn't testosterone the hormone of desire? Nope. Not I was going to say, is it? Not, not <laughs> at all. In, in women, it's not the case it, or in biological females, it's not the case. Um, in biological males, um, it is heavily tied to desire, but they have testosterone levels about 10 times the level that females do. So um, it, it's usually not testosterone. And that actually has been studied in at least a dozen studies where they've looked at measuring testosterone in the body, measuring women's self-reportive desire, and there's just no relationship. So we have to look at, okay, well, what else could be going on? Mm -hmm. And um, it turns out there's a multitude of other things that can be going on. Um, when we look at all of the potential causes psychological and social causes tend to carry more weight than more physical and medical ones. So yes, medications can play a role. They can get in the way. Antidepressants can get in the way of arousal. Um, but the effect of mood, stress, fatigue, poor body image, feelings for a partner, all of those really um, predict a, a woman's level of sexual desire. That explains our pandemic sex life. Yeah, it sure does. <laughs> 
hundred percent. So what's happening in the pandemic with yeah. people's sexual arousal and desire? Yeah, we we studied that. So we, as many others did, kind of jumped at the opportunity, mostly because early in the pandemic, there were all sorts of media reports that were speculating that with all this extra time on our hands, what else would we do besides <laughs> have sex? And predictions about baby booms because everyone was having, you know, unrestrained sex, et cetera. First kids only. <laughs> yeah. yeah, pretty much. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, turns out to be totally wrong. Um, and uh, so what we did is we recruited a large group of Canadians and actually followed them all the way through the pandemic and are still following them to this day to look at things like sexual desire with a partner and on your own and sexual activity with a partner and on your own. Um, and it turns out that um, sexual activity with a partner who lived with you went down but if <laughs> the partner <laughs> but if the partner didn't live with you it either stayed the same or it went up um and so that it highlights really the really important effect of having a partner around all the time and for people who really need space who look forward to travel who have activities outside of the home it created undue amounts of stress not only on individuals but on couples in a way that directly affected their sex lives in a bad way yeah, for sure. Well, we lost all of the adventure. And I read a few different articles and studies that have said that, you know, if you want to improve the sex life in a relationship where two people live together, you have to get out and do adventurous things together if you want the spark to come back. So yeah, yeah we lost the ability to do that, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, I think probably masturbation went up. It went up. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. It went up. Yeah, we're trying to make ourselves feel better. Yeah. Well, I can do this for myself. And that's a it's and that's a good point. It went up not because people were feeling more desire, but it was a means of getting to sleep, managing stress, changing mm -hmm. emotions, doing other things. So yeah, masturbation actually did go up. Not surprising. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the drop in libido that happens to parents postpartum. Mm -hmm. So this we're asking because it's something that comes up all the time in our private community. And we always find that, you know, some of the best advice always comes in some version of, you know, communicate, tell him how you're feeling, like people can't read your mind, postpartum is hard. Mm -hmm. um, but then that also puts a lot of onus on the female partner in the relationship mm -hmm. who has just given birth. So I don't know if you have any Cole's notes, if you could maybe mm -hmm. suggest some things that a new mom could use to explain her lack of desire to yeah. a partner. So I see a lot of uh, postpartum parents or parents of, with young kids in my clinical practice. And um, I have a bit of a cliche piece of advice, but it actually works. And that is that if your kids are under the age of five, you're not going to be having the sex that you used to have. You might not be having any sex at all. Um, so that's one thing is that it's that this kind of idea of the six week postpartum visit where the doctor writes on a script of paper Crazy. and gives you the bill of health and yep, you're good to go. Um, that's purely a physical. So if a person has had a vaginal birth, yeah, around six weeks, um, tears and uh, perineal trauma or what have you might be improved, but that's only a tiny part of the woman and her experience and the much bigger part, which is her brain and her biology and the rest of her body um, is likely not healed by six weeks. So we really want to normalize 
that sex is going to be very different for uh, quite a number of months, if not years. Now, having said that, that doesn't mean that sex doesn't happen and you just have to learn to live with it, but it, it means that you'll have to plan it. And that might mean planning it for times where kids asleep, kids with babysitter, kids watching cartoons, um, and it's okay and it's normal. And in fact, it can be sexy to plan sexual activity. So if you're a person who always had sex after the 11 o'clock news and, and after the 11 o'clock news now, you're completely, completely fatigued or already fast asleep by then, that's not when sex is going to happen. So you want to plan it for the times when you're most awake. So planning gets a bad rap though, which is too bad. Um, but I, you know, when I ask people that I work with why there's such resistance to planning sexual activity, I think it comes from a place of feeling like if you, if you plan it and you talk about it, it makes it clinical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like less spontaneous, less spontaneous and dry and boring And when you think about, you know, what else do you do in your life that you love and look forward to that is not planned? Right. Nothing. (laughs) Yeah. Not when you have kids. (laughs) Not when you have kids. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think just normalizing that sex is going to look different for quite a while. um, And it might include pain regardless of mode of delivery, whether it's a vaginal delivery or a C-section. C-sections can also uh, produce pain because of the impact on the pelvic floor. Um, and planning sex. Well, I think just knowing that like the five-year chunk, like just knowing that information takes such a weight off and takes the pressure off because I do think, like you said, when the doctor hands you that note and you're like, okay, six weeks, am I supposed to be ready now? And your husband's Mm -hmm. like, yay, I haven't gotten laid in a long time. And it's like the Mm -hmm. psychologically, it might be the last thing on your mind. Mm -hmm. Um, I think just getting that information out there is so important so that, you know, everybody can kind of feel normal about it. Yeah. Yeah. And reframe like the brain as the main sexual organ. Like it's not about just your vagina. Right. It's It's actually mostly about your brain, I think. (laughs) It's it's like like almost a hundred percent about your brain. (laughs) Yeah. And in fact, the vagina doesn't have any pleasure sensors. It's the vulva. It's the clitoris. Most women don't orgasm through vaginal stimulation. So yeah, it's definitely the brain. Okay, so since we're talking about ladies and gentlemen, desire and arousal, they're obviously linked, but from what we understand, newer studies are showing that they function differently for men and for women. So can you explain the relationship between desire and arousal pertaining to both sexes? Yeah, so I'm just going to be really careful in my language here, and I'll talk about biological males, recognizing that biological males might identify as men, they might identify as non-binary, they might identify as trans women. So I'm talking about um, folks who are born with a penis <laughs> and have a penis <laughs> to this day, uh, i.e. males. So um, arousal in those individuals is usually um, manifested as an erection, right? So physiological arousal produces a whole host of physical events in the body, blood engorgement, and that produces arousal or an erection. And that is pretty separate from that male's level of desire in their mind. The desire in their mind, which is, which often says, I want to have sex. I'm in the mood for sex. I'm going to seek out sex. I'm feeling horny. I have libido, etc. So males experience those two um, as discrete, although they often go together, right? So if he's in the mood for sex, he'll have an erection. If he has an erection, he's in the mood for sex. Um, right. In, Guys, in, so simple. So simple. <laughs> in, in biological females, they're 
it looks quite different. And so um, we and others in the sex research community have ways of measuring physical arousal in females. So we bring them into a research laboratory, we um, expose them to erotic films, and they insert a vaginal probe, which measures their vaginal blood flow, which is kind of the female counterpart of measuring erection. Um, and study after study after study consistently finds no relationship between how physically engorged her body is and how turned on she says her mind is. In fact, she might be watching a film that's totally turning her off and her body might still be showing those signs of physical arousal. So there's, there's this phenomenon called um, discordance. So the physical arousal and the mental arousal can be discordant or happen separately in the same way that her mind might be turned on and her body is not. She might not be lubricated. She might not um, show other signs of physical arousal. And then there's desire. So desire in women also looks different than it does in men and especially women in longer term relationships. They will often say, you know, I, I don't have desire at the start of a sexual encounter. I go into the encounter because I want to for any multitude of reasons, such as it's good for my relationship. I want to have an orgasm. I want to get to sleep. I want to feel good. It's my partner's birthday, what have you, even if she's, <laughs> even if she's not in the mood, but then she might get to a point of being in the mood at some point during the encounter. And so desire emerges after. We call it responsive desire. So we really want to normalize that a lot of women go into sexual encounters feeling neutral, but open and, and consenting. Right. Yeah, I guess that's uh, that's tricky. Tricky. <laughs> that's tricky waters yeah. to try to wade through, right? Yeah. Like, you might not really want it, but you have to also kind of want it, right. and you have to consent to the other person that wants it. And- I know, and you imagine it to be this, like, spark and this fire each time, right? But we all know that, you know, you've been in a long-term relationship, the pandemic plays in, your kids play in, there's all this other stress. It doesn't often look like that, right? And that's okay. So yeah, normalizing it for sure. So how does this knowledge, the difference between women and men change a researcher's approach to solving this problem of dwindling libido in women? Yeah, well, it means we have to measure it in different ways. Right. And um, so these traditional ways of measuring blood flow um, or physical arousal are only one small piece of the puzzle. And if you really want to know what turns a woman on or if she's in, in the mood, you know, you listen to her mouth, which reflects what, what, how she's feeling and, what, and what's kind of happening within her brain. So um, on the other hand, in many of the studies, the sex research studies that look at the effects of medications on men, they measure erections and they yeah. might not even ask him how he's feeling, right? So yeah. um, that becomes really important with how we measure these really tricky constructs like desire and arousal. I think men are going to have to listen to this episode for sure, because they need to know that it comes from our mouth. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So I have a question about your mindful-based therapies, because they have had the most clinically significant results in the treatment of female sexual interest and arousal disorder, as I understand it. So 
Can you explain your method to us and let us know what you attribute to its success? Yeah. So mindfulness is not new. It's been around for thousands of years. It has historical roots in um, meditation and Buddhism. Um, and in the last four decades or so, it's been um, secularized. In other words, the kind of language of Buddhism has been stripped away, it's been simplified, and it's been really incorporated into Western healthcare. So mindfulness is a practice of paying attention on purpose, non-judgmentally. And there's um, exercises and maybe audio recordings that one can listen to to practice the skill of paying attention non-judgmentally. And uh, the early studies that were done in the 80s and through the 90s, we're really focused on mindfulness as a treatment for chronic pain uh, and really, really worked. They helped practicing mindfulness, helped people get back into their life and Amazing. it helped them reduce, in some cases, people who had a lifetime of chronic pains. It helped them cope with their pain and also reduce their pain. Um, which is a bit paradoxical because we're teaching people to pay even more attention to pain, right? As opposed to ignoring right. it. It's also been applied to anxiety, stress, depression, et cetera. And in the early, um, uh, in the early 2000s, so around 2002, when I was introduced to mindfulness, um, I was also doing sex research at that time, mostly with cancer survivors who were having high rates of sexual problems after their cancer treatments. And it just struck me in listening to their stories that many of the women talked about a disconnect with their sexuality, feeling numb, um, not knowing who they were sexually anymore, uh, um, avoidance, anxiety, aversion. And it just struck me that mindfulness might be useful for them. So um, I started, uh, did a, a small pilot study with a small group of cancer survivors. They found it really useful. That was in 2002. Fast forward 20 years, and we've now um, tested this in thousands of women uh, who might have low desire because of a medication or low desire because of cancer or low desire just because for no reason at, or for multiple reasons or no specific reason. And the science is pretty compelling. Um, it, it, it indicates pretty strongly that compared to either no treatment or a control group that involves just giving them education alone, that mindfulness can dramatically improve desire, reduce distress, um, and then improve those other parts of their life, like, um, decreasing rumination, which is the tendency to really obsess over the problems that you have and that the benefits are maintained a year later. So, it is pretty compelling um, and it's free and it's pretty accessible. That's amazing. So what about these quick fix solutions being marketed to women? Like what are some that you've seen out there that you tell women to stay away from or? Yeah, there are a lot. And, you know, if you were to do a Google search on yeah, treating like low libido in women, you'd have to wade through quite a number of them. I mean, jade eggs. Um, oh yeah! Oh my God! Oh, yeah. Gwyneth Paltrow. I mean, for for all the great that she does in terms of sharing information, there's a lot of misinformation that gets disseminated as well. Well, and, it's just a marketplace at the end of the day, yep. right? So jade eggs is a popular one. Um, pheromones, which is this idea that you can kind of spray like a perfume into the air, things that 
turn you on. Um, even the medications, there are there are two approved medications in Canada, same ones in the U.S. Uh, for the treatment of low desire, but they really don't work that well. They um, translate into one additional satisfying sexual event per month. So if a person is having sex, let's say four times a month, I'm just throwing that out there. That's not gold standard. Um, <laughs> it means that um, one of those will be more satisfying than not being on the medication. And there's all sorts of side effects. So one of one of them, uh, phlebanserin, cannot be I was going to ask with, you to name alcohol. it. Yeah, so flo- oh, you can't mix it with no, alcohol. No, can't be mixed, and it has to be taken daily. So, oh god, there goes um, there goes a libido enhancer for some people. Right. Um, uh, and then the other right. one, Vilec, has to be injected. So it's a oh, self injection. Wow. So they are available, and some people who are are desperate and really want anything will try them. But the science is really not that strong at all. What is that supposed to do? Increase the blood flow to the genitals? So they work differently. Um, they actually, so okay. they both work on the brain, but through different parts of the brain. So the oral okay. one, phlebanserin, um, it um, it's actually used. It was a, tried out as an antidepressant. So it kind of plays around with the serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine systems to kind of depress mm-hmm. some of them and increase some of them. And then the other one, Vilesi, works on uh, the melanocortin receptors in the brain, which a side effect of stimulating those receptors is an increase in desire. So both medications were originally tested for something else, and they found that the people who were using them had this, quote, side effect of having more desire. But like I said, compared to placebo, the effects are really marginal. Right. The once a month you have okay sex. Right. Sexual mm-hmm. mindfulness. Mindfulness is where it's at. You got it. But it is though, like if you can if you can get yourself out of your head Absolutely. of your like body. the tasks mm-hmm. you need to do and just focus on like the sensations in your body, mm-hmm. it makes all the difference. Mm-hmm. Like you can't have a good sexual experience if your brain is somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Like you just and you have to you be, just can't do you it. You have to be connected too on that level. I feel like too, if there's a disconnect with people like on on that mindfulness level or on the psychological mm-hmm. level, then that's tough too, right? Yeah, completely. Yeah, yeah, and that's why mindfulness is so powerful for more than just sex. But it it actually helps connection between you and the other person. Yeah, for sure. So I know we just mentioned our good friend GP with her um, (laughs) goop uh, silliness sometimes, but what are your thoughts on sex therapy? Because I feel like a lot of people have recently watched Sex Love Goop. We are guilty. Mm -hmm. And there might be some curiosity about that. Is that a route that you find yourself recommending to people with issues around libido and desire? Yeah. And, you know, full disclosure, I am a sex therapist, so (laughs) it might not be surprising (laughs) that I endorse it. And and I actually recommend it even for people who don't have sexual issues, but there's plenty of people who never had sex education or don't know anything about their bodies, or they might have... um, hang-ups around masturbation or self-touch that don't translate into sexual dysfunction per se, but it could in the long term. So um, sex therapy doesn't have to be years and years, you know, week after week on the couch. It can be a few sessions of purely education-focused information. So it's it's huge, and and um, the reason it is huge two two big reasons. One is because we do have a lack of good sex education in our system. 
Um, it is, uh, and, and at best it can be harmful. So when we look at some of the systems, uh, across Canada, that I won't name, but, um, they might hit close to home for the two of you. The, the, I was going to say cough Ontario is the worst. The, the, the curriculum used to, used to teach young kids, the actual body parts and it doesn't anymore. It's been removed, um, in place of this kind of generic genitals, right? as if a kid is going to say my genitals. So, um, so that's one reason why um, sex therapy can be really useful. The other reason is that people, even, even people in great, healthy, communicative relationships really struggle around talking about sex, telling a partner what they like or if sex hurts or what they want to do different. So sex therapy can also be a place to learn how to do that effectively and even practice it. Yeah. I'm sure you run up a lot against like the effects that culture and society mm-hmm. have on the female sexual experience, especially in your therapy sessions. Yeah. Do you like, could you speak to that in a broad sense, obviously? Yeah. I mean, I, I think the biggest thing is just societal myths and we live in a sex saturated society that um, doesn't uh, adequately provide information. So, you know, we watch films that depict people jumping into bed without putting kids to bed or without taking their socks off or, you know, <laughs> Um, oh my God, you must always take your socks off. There's nothing <laughs> less right? sexy than a naked man wearing socks. <laughs> nothing less sexy. Exactly. But you don't see that. You don't see people plan it. You don't see people struggle right. with it. You don't. Uh, and so that's one of the challenges um, is, is societally is that it sets up a lot of stereotypes. And then, or or you see people have orgasms every time they have sex. And, you know, yet. Especially vaginal penetration. Right. Which. <laughs> that's all it takes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just no, kidding. wrong. Very wrong. Yeah. So, um, and this is kind of what we're up against. against and I don't see it getting in any better. I, I do see these great documentaries and Netflix series, et cetera. That, that do their part, um, but they're few and far between and they're not universally accessed. So. I know um, books, and I know you have a book too, which we will definitely mention towards the end as well so people can grab it. But I find for me personally, like having that communication is it's great to have books that you can get into and read and then kind of like show it to your partner. They can read it on their own. They can reread it and think about it. And sometimes that's easier to communicate yeah. than actually talking about or whatever yeah yeah because we don't necessarily have the language like mm-hmm. the people that are writing the books are giving us that language mm-hmm. that we can use so sometimes it's easier to just slide yeah. the book across yeah. the table. it's insightful yeah. it's insightful and and there's there's good stats in there and information and yeah it's it's definitely it works <laughs> yeah you, you can also do the same with podcasts by the way just to plug this conversation is yes. you know if, if someone listens to this and says hey you know I want to listen to this with my partner and like pause it and ask each other what we think about what we just heard yeah that's a great strategy yeah very good idea too well on that note let's take a break I'm getting hot over here <laughs> <laughs> This episode was created in partnership with the Women's Health Collective Canada, a strategic alliance founded by three of the country's leading women's health and hospital foundations, BC Women's Health Foundation, Alberta Women's Health Foundation, and Women's College Hospital Foundation. Women's Health Collective Canada funds groundbreaking research and is leading a call for public support for more research and awareness of the health issues affecting women. Find out more at www.whcc.ca 
or on Instagram at WHC Canada. Okay, we are back. This has been such an incredibly insightful chat so far. We are loving it. Thank you so much, Dr. Prado. And since, since we have you on the line, we're going to jump into the topic of fertility quickly um, because that comes up in our community a lot as well. And what do we know about the link between arousal and fertility? Yeah, um, well, it doesn't exist in humans. <laughs> I'll start with Ooh. that. And, wow. and, and I say that because there um, has been some some data in non-human animals that orgasm is necessary for conception to happen. And there was for a long time this kind of idea, um, this myth really that perpetuated, but it, it's been debunked that women need to reach orgasm during sex in order to get pregnant because there's this notion that through the orgasms and the contractions, it kind of sucks the sperm up uh, to allow her to become impregnated. Uh, not true at all, although... Doesn't help I, at I was all. Gonna... Yeah, it, it, <laughs> I'm shocked. Yeah, or, orgasm doesn't. Her, her orgasm oh, doesn't. Man. Um, but uh, we still strongly endorse orgasms for women all yeah. around, <laughs> nonetheless. Um, so, so Too bad that women don't have to orgasm to get pregnant. That would be actually very ideal. Yes, know, that would be it, great. It would. We'd see a lot more effort going towards... Um, 100%. <laughs> yeah, guys have it easy. God, you could just blow a load. Yeah, so there's, so there's not a direct route, but we do know that women who struggle with infertility... Um, that it can take a toll on their sexual desire and sexual arousal, probably through more psychological roots. So feelings of um, lack of femininity and um, uh, disappointment and anxiety and depression, all of which can impact her sexual desire and arousal and response. So it's more the case that longstanding infertility can negatively affect sexual function. Mm, interesting. Okay, so... Here we are back on the topic of education. We can't help but be shocked by how many women have been blindsided. Women that we know, women in our community, they're just completely blindsided with issues surrounding their own fertility. So what do you think that women and girls should be taught about our bodies in order to make decisions about how we're going to go about our fertility in the future? Yeah, it's um it's a bit of a double-edged sword because on the one hand, we want to raise empowered and independent women who think about what they what they want to do in their life whether it's travel or career or schooling or what have you um but one of the kind of consequences of that has been that women have delayed childbearing um until later and so the kind of age of of first pregnancy just keeps getting later and later and later so there's this kind of trade-off that happens, and many women have lives before they have kids. The The problem, though, is our biology and our reproductive biology and, and aging eggs is a reality. So there is no medical advancement that can delay the aging of those eggs. And so what, what that means essentially is that as women age, um, her chances of getting pregnant reduce. And after the age of 36, it dramatically goes down. Uh, but also the chances of miscarriage um, can, or other kinds of genetic mutations or anomalies can increase. Um, I work with a lot of our local fertility experts here in BC, and many of them really advocate for young women to consider egg freezing 
or uh, egg preservation. Um, and it's just acknowledging that women might not start thinking about this until their mid to late thirties when yeah, they're exactly. well into that kind of, um, you know, declining fertility rate. So uh, that is one thing that I'd say maybe 10 years ago was just beginning to be considered and talked about. And now, as I said, a lot of the top fertility experts are really saying, okay, I know you don't want kids now, you're only 30 years old, but freeze the eggs, put them away. So what's the age that that conversation needs to happen yeah. at, do you think? Yeah, it's it's tricky because y- you don't want to go too young, like in high school students, because all they're thinking about is not getting pregnant. So the yeah. thought of and having sex. And, <laughs> yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> not getting pregnant, but having sex nonetheless. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, it, it's individual, but I would say probably sometime in a woman's 20s, that yeah. um, that uh, hopefully she has a healthcare provider, whether a gynecologist or a family doctor or another specialist or a nurse um, that she has a relationship with, and um, and that knows her and can and can kind of plant that seed, so to speak, yeah. and have that conversation uh, with her over time. But do women need to kind of take the lead there? Or is this like, is this a normal conversation that your doctor would have with you at a certain age? Like, I feel like it just doesn't come up, right? Until it's too late. And then you have limited options. Maybe the seed needs to be planted in high school then. Like maybe the timelines about eggs need to be made very clear when you're just as like a reading young and you don't really care. But then you're just like, oh, hey, I'm like 25. Maybe at my next doctor's appointment, I should like bring this up because I remember that one time in sex ed yeah or even your parents yeah that's something that I would talk to my daughter about if I had a daughter if you knew if you kind of made aware of everything and you had all the information then yeah definitely and the more often the better because you might not hear it in full at this time but you might hear a little bit more of it at another time so definitely planting the seed and revisiting it but um the onus ultimately is on the woman herself to bring this up and you know unless the care provider is a specialized fertility gynecologist Mm -hmm. who this is their bread and butter work most family docs will just not bring this up so can you tell us the ages again like what is the you said 36 things start to get a little trickier yeah I think 36 by some of the Canadian fertility standards you're there's a terrible term called geriatric pregnancy I won't say it I know isn't it all I had a geriatric pregnancy too so oh my god (laughs) such a slap in the face it is I know because it's it's the eggs it's not the person and it's not her life language matters language matters yeah so um it's probably safe to say in in her mid 30s um is when things might start to change a little bit and she'll need to be a bit more intentional around tracking her cycles and planning and monitoring her ovulation and this is kind of outside of infertility this is just kind of conception planning is starting to track those kinds of things and when are the eggs the ripest yeah, like was... when are they ripest <laughs> for the picking well, I was going to say like when females are the most fertile they're what like 16 18 to like 25 yeah Yeah, so and they're not thinking about babies and family planning and they don't want to have these conversations so that's why like maybe we should be planting those seeds so at least they know and they can have it in their minds you know when they hit that 20 it's like dumb dumb me getting pregnant at 25 yeah you did it (laughs) 
Yeah. It's good now, now that they're like older yeah. and I'm still young, yes. but it's like... Really hard at the time. Yes, but very, very easy to get pregnant. <laughs> super, super fertile. <laughs> okay, so we should be thinking about maybe freezing these eggs around like between 25 and 30. Yeah, or or at least have a conversation. Actually, not 25 to 30, in, in one's early 30s. I think 25, okay. you're still plenty fertile. Even at 30, you're still plenty fertile the graphs start to decline after the age of 30, not to any worrisome level at all until she's in her kind of mid to late 30s. Yeah, I got pregnant when I was 33. Mm -hmm. And it was very easy, a little bit too easy, if you ask my opinion. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Dr. Brado, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today on the hotline. Oh, thank you. It's a great conversation. And hopefully your listeners will take a kernel of information that they can use in their own lives. Absolutely. So can you tell people where they can find you online and your research? Yeah. Um, So I'm, you can find me on Twitter, uh, uh, at Dr. Lori Brado. My book is Better Sex Through Mindfulness. Um, and I have the second edition coming out middle of this year, 2022, which is the at-home guide, which guides people through the mindfulness exercises. Um, our research is at UBCSHR, which is Sexual Health Research. Um, and uh, I also work with the Women's Health Research Institute, which is um, uh, within the province of BC. We lead and support all women's health research in the province. Amazing. Well, we can't wait to share all of this with our audience my pleasure thank you both we'll do it again (laughs) okay let's please thank you so much take care so what did we learn we learned that we need to be focused on the brain when speaking to female arousal hope the hubbies are listening (laughs) Yeah, and I guess we actually need to be teaching our daughters about the relationship between their brains and their sexual well-being. It's on us to plant those seeds and ensure a healthy sexual future for women. Yep, and as with most things pertaining to women's health, we must advocate for ourselves. Well, on that note, we're out of here. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast, and share it with every woman you know. And every man you know. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely send it to every man you know. (laughs) that's it for us kids ciao for now see you next week the song you're listening to is called name a number off the debut album unrequited by roshan stream it now on apple music